Okay, so last week we looked at Romans chapter 8. We saw Paul pen uh, some words that we are living by today. He said, our great hope was written, and it says, there is now no... There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But there was a caveat that he actually penned. He said that there was an expectation. You see, there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. You see, it's the Holy Spirit living with inside us that enables us not only to have eternal life, but allows us to have a new life each and every single day as we live for Jesus Christ, because he's the one who saved us. Again, as I've said so many more times before, that this ties right into our memory verse. And this is the last week we're going to be memorizing this one and looking at it. So hopefully you've been able to to put this to memory, or at least are incredibly familiar. So later on when we, we pass this one by, you'll say, hey, I know that one. It says, you can say it with me one last time, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Oh, thank you so much. That's tight. Yes, Titus 2, 11 through 12. There you go. I, I always forget something one way or the other. Now, as we've been looking and we've been working our way through the book of Romans, uh, we're actually going to be in Romans chapter 9 today, working through Romans chapter 9. You can turn there if you'd like to. We'll get there in a minute. But God reveals his plans, and he's slowly going through here in this book uh, that God has chosen to use each and every single one of us for his glory. And it, unfortunately, uh, as God is revealing his plans, there are those who become quite angry with him because of the way that he chooses to act. And we get angry with him because God doesn't always act the way we expect, and we we get frustrated with him and say, God, this isn't what I, what I wanted. This isn't what I expected. You see, we each slowly over time develop the way that we view the world. And that's a good thing. It's the way that we have a, a developmental process within our own lives. But somehow during that time, we often, whether we state it out loud or not, slowly develop our own personal biases. We like something more than we like other things. We tend to go one way or the other. And as you probably know, religious people have uh, very strong views at times. Uh, if you've ever encountered somebody else with an opposite view. Now, I have talked through at length in the past how the Israelites actually developed this idea that they were better than the other nations. After all, God had called them to be his personal representatives. He worked miracles through the Israelite nation. He had his spoken word to the Israelite nation. He had his promised Messiah coming through their genealogy. They had developed a bias They had thought that they had become better than everybody else slowly through the years. And now we come to this point where Paul is about to start talking how it's not this physical genealogy that brings us back into relationship with our creator, but it's faith. And that there's this dividing difference that brings us back into relationship with our creator. Now the world tells us to look at our country and we can see in America, that we've had blessings and we've had riches. And in many ways, we are um, an image of the way Israelite was at one point. People started looking to them as the leading country, as the nation that was leading. But unfortunately, they took their eyes off of God. And if we don't learn from their mistakes, we're destined to follow in their path. And you've probably heard the old saying, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And uh, so today, uh, the sermon is titled, Unboxing God. 
Today we're going to be talking about taking God out of the box that we all have personally put him in. One way or the other, we all do it in different ways. And we're going to be talking about that through Romans chapter 9 and a little bit into chapter 10. Today we're going to be looking at three different points. We're going to be looking at our inheritance. We're going to be looking at God's plans. And the last one is life is not fair. Life is not fair. Now, if you have a hard time taking notes or if you just like coloring, I do have some children's brochures, kids' bulletins all the way in the back. They actually go through with the sermon, actually simplify some stuff. We also have uh, crayons and clipboards as well if anybody's interested. So if you like taking notes or scribbling, and it's even got a, I think it's got a crossword puzzle today. Okay, so today we're going to go into our inheritance. Let's read Paul's opening statements in verses 1 through 4. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9. I'll be reading out of the New King James today. 1 through 4. This is what he says. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So, There is this television show that my boys like to watch about these Vikings who train these dragons and ride them around. And in the show, uh, they develop this uh, saying called the honey in the hatchet. And in the show, what happens is all of the village realizes that nobody's telling each other the truth. They're all just kind of, you know, blowing it over. They're not actually telling each other the truth because everybody's afraid. Well, at one point, they, they start actually saying, you know, you have to give them the honey and the hatchet. And what he's saying is that first you have to butter them up and say some beautiful things, and then you got to let the axe fall, hence the honey and the hatchet. And right now, Paul is saying some beautiful things, absolutely true things that are on his heart, but he's going to go into letting the axe fall. You see, in this approach, you tell a hard truth, but you kind of butter it up and make it a little bit of a softer blow, hopefully. So here, as he's going through, you're going to take note that he's about to comfort some, he's going to confront some very long-held traditions. The people of Israel have these traditions, and he's saying, you know what, these traditions have led you astray and have put God in a box. And God is doing something new. At this point in life, in, in the book of Romans, Jesus has died on the cross, and now all of a sudden, they're going from this sacrificial system where you had to do these sacrifices, these animal sacrifices for years, and now all it is is faith. And this is a completely different way of listening and, and following God in many people's visions, even though God himself had actually shown them that this is where he was going. So he reminds them of the promises that God has given to them, that God wants their best and that he wants the hatchet to fall. So here in verse 6 it says this, But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So probably in the nicest way possible, he's going to say that people can't blame the word of God for what's happening. Rather, the predicament that they are now faced with is their own doing. In the second sentence, he actually says the problem, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, that sounds a little bit confusing. Like, wait, wait, what? Well, how are you not all Israel of all Israel? So the people at this point would be like, well, my dad's an Israelite. Grandpa was an Israelite. All my family are Israelites, so we are all Israelites, right? Well, the difference is, at one point in the nation, in the history of the nation, the word Israelite became synonymous with two different things, a physical lineage and a spiritual heritage. It was a physical lineage and a spiritual heritage. And what he's saying is he's actually going to differentiate the two. Just because you're part of a physical line doesn't mean you're part of the spiritual line. 
And the people were confusing the two. And he's actually going to actually expose this and talk about this. Now, the problem actually comes uh, through these lineages, and these people have totally uh, taken on the identity as God's people. Now, they assumed that they were God's people because of their physical lineage. Now, this is their problem. And you're actually going to see this in different uh, religions today. Uh, You may have heard of a family or may have come from a family where you were a Christian because mom and dad were Christians, whether you actually followed Christ in faith yourself or not. Uh, As Catholic families often say, you know, I'm Catholic, my whole family's Catholic. And even if you don't have a personal relationship with the Savior, there are other religions as well that are out there. And we can pass on a physical lineage, our bloodline, uh, as We do, but a physical lineage and a spiritual heritage are passed on in two completely separate ways. They're not the same. Yes, you are an American because your parents are American citizens. So the physical lineage is not the same because your mom and dad, just because they were Christians, doesn't mean that you're going to be a Christian. And that's a very important point that we have to point out. Now, Paul fully recognizes this false belief, and the fact is leading thousands upon thousands Israelites to hell. At the end of the day, they're falsely believing that because they were born into an Israelite nation family, that they are on God's side, and they are part of God's plan. And Paul's saying, no, just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're an Israelite. And he's using those two differently. So let's look at verses 7 and 8 and try to figure out where this is going. Verses 7 and 8 says, Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh... These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So here he spells it out plainly. You don't receive your heavenly inheritance from the flesh. It's not the same as your physical inheritance. There's a difference between those who are the children of the flesh, as he's speaking here, and those who are of what is called the promise. So the question is, then, what is the difference? What is the difference? He actually goes on to answer it, So which that's nice. Here, look at it in verses 9 through 10. Verses 9 through 10 says this. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah has also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac. For the children, not yet being born, have not done any good or evil purpose that God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. I read a little bit further than I meant to there. Now every Israelite would know the story of Isaac's birth. His father and mother, Abraham and Sarah, were way past childbearing years. In fact, they were older than any single person in this room. And it was through faith that they were able to have their son, Isaac. Now, at this point, though, they had also decided to, by man's will and determination, they actually uh, had Ishmael. And Ishmael was a product of the flesh, a physical inheritance. And God's word is saying, I am not following your standards Just because you physically wanted this isn't what I wanted myself. God wanted a spiritual inheritance. This had to be by faith. The child that he wanted had to be coming through faith. Again, God is showing that he's not interested and he's not really bound by our standards and laws. God actually operates slightly different than we do. Sometimes when we start expecting things of God, he changes things up. And this is what he's doing here. Now, typically, the oldest would become the leader of the family. But here, God is saying that Isaac, who has an older brother, Ishmael, Isaac would actually be serving. And Isaac's own sons would have the same thing happening uh, with these two boys. He actually talks about them here in this passage. Now, that actually brings us to our second point, 
which is God's plans. God's plans. So Paul has now shattered this whole idea. Remember, these people think of this lineage, and they're like, the lineage is the law. This is the way things go. Oldest is in charge. The youngest has to serve the oldest. And God is all of a sudden saying, no, that's that's not the way it is. It's by faith. It's not your physical lineage. God has shattered these expectations. So now what he's going to do is he's going to move forward and he give them another earth-shattering revelation. And he says this, that God doesn't treat everyone equally in the way that we treat equality. So at first he's saying, your physical lineage doesn't guarantee you an inheritance with God. It's a spiritual thing that has to be gone by faith. And now he's saying that God doesn't treat everybody equally. He gets to choose how he wants to treat everybody. And he's actually going to go into this and actually go into some deep stuff. Here, let's look at verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16 says this. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Well, certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So Paul actually recognizes the size of the claim that he just makes. That's why he actually starts it off and say, whoa, is there unrighteousness within God? Absolutely not. Because God is able to make a decision and he gets to own his decision. So let's put the brakes on for just a moment before we move forward. Do you realize the magnitude of that claim? What he's saying about God and his ability to choose. Now, if your faith is small and constrained, everything is tied up in a little blow, and everything is nice and neat and orderly, it becomes very hard because you would find that a statement like this makes you feel like God is unreliable. Maybe that God is mean. He's saying that he gets to choose whom he's going to have mercy on. And he's saying, I hated Esau and I loved his brother. Does does that mean God, a horrible person? In fact, actually, Paul has recognized this. Is there unrighteousness in God? Absolutely not. And so he's actually trying to bring out a point here that God is not cruel-hearted, but he is worthy of being worshipped. Verse 16 actually tells us that God's mercy has nothing to do with human will or effort, what verse 16 pulls out, but that it's completely his choice. See, God gave us free will. God gave us free will. But let me, let me ask a question. Where did God come up with free will? How did he give us free will? God himself has free will. God has free will. Okay? God is not a genie in a bottle. God has free will. And I know that's, that's an interesting thing that maybe we don't discuss very often, but God actually gets to make his own choices. He gets to follow his own decisions. God actually has his own set of parameters that he operates by. Now, there's a difference between him and us. God has never sinned. God's never going to sin. That's his nature. We have used our free will to go on a path of complete destruction. God will never do that. He has perfect free will. But he gave it to us, which is very interesting. Because he's not a genie in a bottle, he's not trapped in a box that we can handle. And he gets to move outside of the box that we often try to place him in. But he considers our state. He doesn't make a something, he doesn't make an assumption without considering us. He does actually take us into account because he values us and he values our opinion. Let's read the next couple of verses so we can actually flesh this one out. Verses 17 through 18 says this, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills 
and whom he wills, he hardens. So if you're reading along with me, and I just read that right, God said to Pharaoh that he created him to basically be a bad example to the rest of the world. Is that what you got? It sounds like God created Pharaoh with the intent to show him off as a bad example so that every generation would learn from him. When God is in a box and we have clear and easy to find lines in how God operates, the answers to these kind of questions are easy. But here on the other hand, the answer is not so simple as to did, did God take Pharaoh's free will out of the picture? Because that's the way this seems like when you first read it. Did God take Pharaoh's free will? Well, if God has taken Pharaoh's free will, then that would go against God's character. But I think there's more at play here. Remember what I talked about when I said we need to keep an eye on the big picture? This is the reason why I talk about understanding the Bible from one end all the way to the other. Instead of just pulling out a single event and a single scripture, you can get out of context. and You can start getting this wrong idea of who God is and how he operates. We start looking in the big picture of everything. If we go back to Exodus 7, which I'm actually going to put on the screen, you'll find that Moses is approaching Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Aaron tosses down his staff. You probably saw the movie back in the day. Um, and so he tosses down the staff. The staff turns into a snake. And then uh, Pharaoh says, ha, we can do that. All of the magicians toss down their staffs. They turn into snakes. And then Aaron's staff snakes kind of eats all of their staff snakes. And Moses wins. Uh, but here, this is actually it from the verse. It says, for every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So that's the actual verse. That's the turning point. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? The first time, it's Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the one that started hardening his heart. Later on in the Bible, specifically in Exodus, because that's where the story happens, you're going to find that God allows and actually almost participates in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh was the one that started the journey. Pharaoh was the one that chose to harden his heart. He chose to follow his power and will instead of God. Instead of humbling himself, he's the one that started this journey. God did not take Pharaoh's free will out of the picture. He allowed Pharaoh to choose his free will and then allowed him to continue on that path, which is very important to know. Now, I want to propose a question to you. What do you call a plan for something that will happen if you already know the outcome? If you're planning on something to happen, but you already know the outcome, what do you call that? The Bible calls it predestination. The Bible calls it predestination, which is a big word. You've probably heard predestination before. You see, God already knows the outcome. He's saying that I've got this plan, I'm going I'm to put this in place, but he actually already knows the outcome. He never guesses, he never has to. He is both, and this is where you kind of got to wrap your mind around it, God is both simultaneously at the beginning of creation right now and at the end of your life right now, congratulating you on a job well done. He is at both places because he is actually outside of time. God is already outside of time and knows absolutely everything. A poor and limited understanding of this concept will believe that God has removed free will from our lives. There are those who say, well, we can't but help to either go to hell or go to heaven. That, that's God's hands. In fact, Abraham Lincoln during his day, you've probably heard the saying, manifest destiny. The idea was that the divine has this will that we can't avoid and we can't do anything about, we just have to follow. This is a limited idea of the word predestination. But really what it means is God knows the outcome and he's allowing us to follow our own free will during that. And I hope that's clear. If that's not, I'll, I'll talk to you more about it at a different time. Now, but the question remains, what authority does God have to make these kind of directions and assumptions about our lives? What kind of authority does God have? Well, 
I'm glad you asked because this is exactly what Paul leads into. Verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21. So you're going to say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So God's authority comes from the fact that he formed us. He decided what our image was going to look like and he formed us into that image. He designed us. He made us on purpose. Now, this is the biggest rejection that we're having in our society today is that God has the authority over us. We see a complete and total rejection of authority. If there is no God, there is no authority. There's no one who says what your purpose is. There's no one to call you male or female. There's no one to say uh, the reason why you exist. This is what you're seeing in our society today is a complete and total rejection of authority. Now, God has unchanging and unmovable direction. God doesn't make new and contradictory statements. There are people that say that God is still speaking today. And while God is still active in listening to us today, he is not giving new ordinances that actually contradict what he has said in the past, as some are saying. Contrary to popular secular thought, there is not a your truth and my truth. I don't get to live my own personal truth bubble. God has set what the truth is, and we have to abide by it. It's the same truth for every single one of us. God has the authority to say this. He transcends culture, and he has always done so. God always transcends culture because he is before and after it. So, point three, life's not fair. So in closing chapter nine, Paul issues a very important question, and he actually answers it in chapter 10. Let's read verses 30 through 31. Life's not fair. 30 through 31, here we go. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, have not obtained the law of righteousness. Okay, so what he's saying, because sometimes Paul can get things jumbled up and it makes it a little confusing. He's saying, does what we have just looked at, does this mean that those who have not pursued God and his righteousness now have freely obtained it, even though they did nothing for it? This is what he's saying. As a summary of chapter 9, he's saying, wait a second, are you saying that the Israelites who have done years of sacrifice, literal animal sacrifice, who have gone into bondage and slavery for 40 years, being God's witness bearers and testimony bearers, who have gone and suffered for hundreds of years and tried to do everything God has told them to do, has upheld his commandments and sought his righteousness, and then there's these Gentiles over here who got the same thing, but they did nothing? That doesn't make any sense. How can these people over here, the people who haven't actually sought God or his righteousness, get the same thing that we were pursuing and we did all the heavy lifting? That's what he's asking. Because right now, the people who are the Jewish people would be feeling very let down. They'd be like, well, the the rug just got pulled out from under us. How, How is it God's giving these people the same righteousness that we've been working so hard to keep for generations? If we're ever going to say life's not fair, this is the point where you say life's not fair. You see, we can be shown that our inheritance doesn't come from the physical, that God has free will and he blesses whom he chooses. Now, after all the years of literal sacrifice, grace has been freely given to these other people. 
Paul here has a heartfelt cry, and he actually comes through in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, you can actually think of this as a bookend. If you looked at chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 10, verse 1, they're actually very similar, and almost in the way he actually bookends that entire segment there. Now, it's within this chapter we're going to find my favorite verse in Scripture. And it comes from chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And it's within this chapter, as we're looking at it, we're going to find that Moses was actually trying to point to this. And the law was actually to help direct us to this point. Not just physical obedience, but heart obedience is what God was calling us to. Not just what happened with our hands, but what happened with our hearts and our minds. And this is why he points to words that you have probably heard before from this pulpit once or twice, if you remember. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus Christ died in our place. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He chose freely. Remember I talked about God has free will? He chose his free will to die in my place for my sins, but he didn't commit any sin. Life's not fair. He died for my sin, and he didn't have to. He died for your sin. He chose freely to step into our place. This is what the gospel's about. It's the redeeming nature of our God. Through faith is what it's calling us to. He actually goes on to tell his countrymen that if they entrust their heart to Christ, they won't be put to shame. That this thing that's happening right now at their time and moving away from all these sacrifices on the altar and going straight into faith in Christ, it wouldn't put them to shame. They wouldn't be embarrassed by it. As believing in the gospel and finally admitting that they were no better than the nations around them, you see, no one is more righteous than any other person. And at this point, the Israelite nation had looked down upon the surrounding nations for generations. For generations, they felt like they were better. And now through Christ, they finally have to realize that they aren't, that they're all the same, that we each sin. He says in verse 12, these words, he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is rich to all who call upon him. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because it's learning to lessen our view of ourselves. We have to become humble. We have to acknowledge that we are in no better standing of God than the Afghani terrorist. I know that sounds really crazy. It sounds crazy to equate my sin with that of a terrorist. But God sees all sin equally. In God's standing without Christ, we are all bound for the same destination, no matter how little we feel our sin is or how big we feel our sin is. In God's sight without Christ, we're all bound to the same destination. But Christ equalizes that, and all it is is faith. Our sin has put us on a level playing field. And every single one of us, all we have to do, no matter how far we have to look up, feel like the hole that our sin has left us in, it's just reaching your hand up, no matter how far down you feel like you are. And life's not fair. Those who have created a horrible life for themselves in the same faith step can get saved as, as the child who's barely had a chance. But that's what Jesus has done. He's leveled the playing field. But we need to be able to tell our neighbors of this love. How will your neighbor know of this same redeeming love and grace if we don't go and tell them? And that's actually what he goes through in chapter 10. How will they know? Let's look up the last verses and we're gonna wrap this one up. We're almost done. Verses 13 through 15 in chapter 10. 
13 through 15. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who brings glad tidings of good things. All it takes to spread the good news, as Mary Jane was saying earlier, is that one awkward moment and that persistence. Yeah, they, they might not accept Christ or the gospel the first time. It might take years. They may never do it. You don't know. Only God does. Our job is to open our mouths and to tell them the truth, to love them, be honest with them, just the way Paul was to his own people. One awkward moment in the words you could say would save a life. So I have some application questions. Number one, what box have you put God in? What box have you put God in? We each, whether knowingly or not, tend to place God in a box. We constrain the unconstrainable. In fact, actually, what's interesting is when we put God in a box, we actually don't limit God. The only thing we do is we limit how God can use us. We only limit how God can use us. Last question. What is God's plan for your life? The big easy question. You're like, everybody answers that question. Everybody's got that question. Why is this a closing point? God has a plan. But his plan revolves around your willingness to listen to him, to humble your life to him, and to follow in obedience. Now, if you don't know where God's plan for your life is leading, I'd love to talk to you. The Bible actually has some very unique perspectives on directing us and actually giving you something physical for you to even be doing now to actually trust the Lord. He actually has a bunch of commands that he's given us that we can do daily. We're feeling lost and we don't know where God's leading us. God's word has a lot to say about where you can be and what you can be doing in his will. Christ came to save you. He leveled the plane and it's by faith. It's not by this physical lineage. It's not because your parents were in church. It's not because your grandparents, it's not because your whole family. It's your personal faith. Have you accepted Christ? Let's close. Father, I thank you so much uh, for an opportunity to share your gospel. Lord, I ask that you continue always to shatter our expectations. Help us to realize when we've put you in a box. Help us to realize that you have free will and that you can operate in a way that you choose fit. God, I ask that you help us to understand your will for our life and understand your compassion, your heart. God, I thank you for for freely going to the cross and dying in my place. Life is not fair. You got the death that I deserved, and I thank you so much for that. Help each and every single one of us to pass that on to somebody else. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.